I think I've mentioned it before that my religious education as a child was spotted at best. Maybe yours too. We occasionally, sporadically, went to the Roman Catholic Church that I was born into, but only for the first eight to ten years, and it was sporadic. I do remember one vacation Bible school. It may have been the only one I went to, where we glued cotton balls onto pieces of construction paper and learned something about David as a shepherd and that Jesus had a soft place in his heart for sheep. (laughs) I had no idea how he felt about other animals. He had something to do with sheep. And then I remember my great aunt, Ani, as I called her, reading a collection of Bible stories for kids. And that's pretty much it. A recent article in the Christian Century says that children's collections of Bible stories have changed. 30, 40 years ago, those stories were fairly dark. God was stern, and the kids were scared into sitting up straight and flying right. That was the theology embedded in those ancient versions. But nowadays, they said, the stories are, well, kinder and gentler stories of a God who is love, which makes sense to me because that's who God is, love. So I wonder, in these newer collections of stories out of the Bible for kids, I wonder how they treat this one. The drowning of the Egyptians. How old do you have to be to read this story? When our middle daughter was just a little girl and we would read stories to all of them, you know, Dr. Seuss or whatever, and then tuck them into bed, our middle daughter would always say, and now I want a Bible story. And the rules were, I could never repeat a story. It's pretty challenging, and I'm sure because I had to. I I told the story of the Exodus, but surely I cleaned this up. I mean, she was being tucked into bed. How do you go to sleep after a story like this? Sweet dreams, honey, the Egyptians drowned. (laughs) What is this story rated? How old do you have to be? Not all of you grew up in church, and so your religious education may have been spotty as well, because it's not just this part of the story, but the whole of the story that is rooted in violence. So I don't know if you made good grades in Sunday school or if you cheated off somebody else's coloring sheet. So here's just a brief review. The Israelites are born out of God speaking to Abraham and Sarah. But by the time we pick it up, they are slaves in Egypt. And as slaves, they are treated incredibly harsh. The Pharaoh, seeing that the Israelites are growing in number, issues an order that the male children be slaughtered as they're born, and which would have applied to Moses except for some kind women who rescue him from that plight. And when Moses grows up to be an adult, he's the one who is sent to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And, Mo- and the Pharaoh just won't go along with that. And so God sends plagues, ten of them, upon the Egyptians. And it's the last one, the death of the firstborn Egyptian children that finally cinches it. Get out of here. Go. And they go, but the army pursues them. And you heard it. The Israelites cross over in dry land, and the Egyptians drown. And it's then that Moses and later Miriam sings a song It's kind of their July 4th. It's their freedom. 
and their national anthem, God has rescued them. That's what happens in the story, but what do we make of it? How do we interpret it? The last two Monday nights, a group of 30 of us or so, we worked on this passage and we struggled with it so that I might have something to say today. And some of them are putting their head down now. <laughs> In our midst, both Monday nights, was a Jewish scholar that I know along with his wife, which was really interesting dynamics to talk about this passage. And he stood up the first night and shared this story. When their son reached the age of bar mitzvah, this was the passage he was to read. Now, if you don't know, a bar mitzvah for boys, bat mitzvah for girls, is when they become a child of the commandment. Son of the commandment, daughter of the commandment. And it happens when they're 13. And for Christians, it would be like if your birthday and your baptism fell at the same time. It's an amazing moment. It's a great highlight. The family comes. You're at the synagogue. You eat. You celebrate. It's a wonderful thing. And their son just kept saying, how, how can we sing this? How can he said we celebrate our deliverance at the expense of the drowning of the Egyptians and on my bar mitzvah? My Jewish friend later in the week emailed me reminding me of that little phrase, theological dissonance. You know cognitive dissonance, when one thing and another, they just don't compute, it doesn't make sense. Theological dissonance is when what we know of God, of who God is, doesn't jive with the text. What then? How do we make sense of it? Two years ago, I was in San Antonio for a conference of biblical scholars and theologians, and yes, eating a little Mexican food on the side, but one night, probably the highlight of the entire event, was when the winner of the Templeton Prize gave a lecture. Now, most of us know the Nobel Prize in categories like physics and chemistry and literature, etc., but notably absent in their categories is religion. And so the Templeton Prize was originated for that very purpose. And this year's recipient, two years ago, was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. For all of his work over the years, but also for his book, Not in God's Name. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And at one point he says that the relationship between religion and violence has for the most part played out like this. Everybody claiming that the other religion is violent, but not theirs. Sound like 9-11 to you? Islam, it, it, it's, it's a violent religion, not us. Or the Jews, that God of the Old Testament, violent God, not us. Ignoring the fact that as Christians we participated in the Crusades and the witch trials and slavery and on and on the list goes. Theirs is a violent religion, not ours. An us and them. And it's in the text. There is tit for tat in this text. You know, you killed, you killed, and, and, and now we will kill. And the violence is a cycle that gets perpetuated. It's fascinating because in the book, Sachs says, the history of the relationship of religion and violence. A lot of people have assumed that religion naturally leads to violence. It just seems to be part of history. But some social theorists have this amazing kind of idea that maybe it was the other way around. Violence that gave 
birth to religion. And, and it goes like this, that in the uh, primary days in the beginning, that these tribes would be fighting each other. Somebody has to die, and so we would attack back, and there was just this never-ending violence. But what religion did was let both sides come together and kill something else, like a lamb or a goat. Well, at least blood was shed. It's a horrible idea that religion could have been born out of violence. And yet it, it's not hard to imagine. Biblical scholars love how later in this chapter Miriam sings. And the reason they love it is because Bible stories are almost always about the men. The women are just behind the scenes. They don't count for much. And here Miriam, with tambourine in hand, dances and sings, and at least she gets a part on the stage. But, oh my God, does she have to sing this song too? Moses and then Miriam. God has thrown the rider and the horse into the sea. What kind of song is that to sing to God? I, I, I picture refugee women in camps this very day, fanning a dying child and humming a song. How can Miriam sing? Or I think about all the gang violence and African-American mothers putting in the grave yet one more son. What song will they pick for the funeral? What kind of song can you sing when a people are killed? In the book, Sachs also mentions a famous sociological experiment. You may have read about it at different times called Prisoner's Dilemma. They actually made a game show out of it in the UK. And it goes like this. You and someone else are contestants and you've won some money and now it's the end of the show. But to claim the money, you have to do one more thing. You have to secretly vote. Will you steal or share? If both of you vote steal, well, it's too bad. Nobody gets anything. If both of you vote share, you share it. You know where this is going, right? Because if one votes steal and the other votes share, the stealer takes it. And the studies they've done on the experiment are fascinating because they say, if you really want to make it work, what you have to do is let the same two people play it over and over and over until eventually they get it. Oh, I can trust you, and you can trust me, and we will share. But that's the only way it really works. Which makes me think, how are we going to heal the world that is so divided? Not just two people, but the world. I think Parker Palmer is right, that while we want systemic change, it does begin in the one-on-ones. When I taught at the seminary, every spring I was honored to host the Cleaver Lectures. When Emmanuel Cleaver left office as mayor, funds were raised to name a, a lectureship after him, our most famous alum of St. Paul's School of Theology. So every spring, he and I would plan the event and we would find the speakers. And it was uh, several years ago that it was the granddaughter of Eisenhower and the grandson of Truman. And they told stories, funny stories, about going to see their granddad at the White House, which I'm sure is pretty surreal, going to see your granddad at the White House. 
But at the lectureship, they told about how both of their granddads had been instrumental in integration within the military. But because I got to host them, it was in a one-on-one -on -one that Daniel Truman told me about, well, he said, can you imagine what it's like knowing that your grandfather ended World War II, but with bombs? That's theological dissonance. I mean, his grandfather ended World War II, but is the only person to use the atom bomb twice, wiping out whole cities. So what Daniel Truman did was become friends with the grandson of the emperor of Japan. And he would go over, not for photo ops, but they built a relationship and committed to working for justice. For some reason, wired into our DNA as humans is this notion of separating, separating us and them, Egyptians and Israelites, Jews and Palestinians today, black and white, Americans and Russians, we just keep doing it. And always with the definite article about them, the Israelites, the Egyptians, you know how they are. You, you've been around one, you've been around them all. There's a great old rabbinic story, a tradition. See, the rabbis don't like this either. But it's the text, and so they try to figure out what to do with it. And so they, the rabbis made up stories, and one of them is that when this was happening, and the Israelites walked across dry land, and the Egyptians were drowning, the angels in heaven started to sing the song as well, and God shushed them. No, no, no. You cannot sing when my creatures are dying. The Egyptians are my children too. And they stopped. I guess God didn't want a song like that getting stuck in their heads. You know how that happens, right? Earworm, whatever you want to call it. You get a song stuck in your head. You're listening to Pandora, the radio, and it's the Beatles, and the rest of the day you're singing, let it be, let it be. You're just humming. And, or it's a shampoo commercial, and you get a silly jingle in your head. What kind of song do you think God wants stuck in our head? Or... What kind of song do you think is stuck in God's head? 